I'll be reading from Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. Now at that time, Herod the king seized some, sorry, seized some from Messiah's community to do them harm. He had Jacob, John's brother, put to death with the sword. Seeing it pleased the Judean leaders, he proceeded to capture Peter as well. This was during the days of Matzah. After seizing him, he put him in prison, handing him over to four squads with four soldiers each to guard him. He was intending to bring him before the people after Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being offered fervently to God by Messiah's community. So yeah, so seized, what's the past tense of seized? Is it sozed? Did he sows him? Did he sows him? He was sozen? He was seized? And how many guards are you? It's a math question. Huh? No, four sets of four. Three sets of four sets of four. Sixteen. Anyways, we'll get there. It's not that you didn't know the math. You just weren't listening to Trace. That's all. I know you know the math. Four fours. Anyways. Okay. So welcome. So now, does, it, does that sound okay? All right. So uh, whether you realize it or not, we, uh, we've kind of been in the flow of two different... Uh, we have sermon series in a sense, and we were in the series on the, the uh, um, on worship, if you remember, probably more back towards December, and uh, we, we did that for a while, and now we are we've been in a series more or less on more or less on. He didn't fall. He's okay. More or less on. Uh, I would never. Re- you hit the clock with your body. I think it's like seven feet off the ground. I didn't even know it was there. Yeah, you're six foot three. Who needs to be that tall? My gosh. <laughs> I do. I would like to be that tall. Anyways, um, <laughs> in a series on, on prayer, and uh, did I tell you my grandmother thought I was six feet tall? Did I ever tell you that? She's like four foot ten. She thought I was you're six feet tall. And of course, I couldn't lie. I said, you're right, Grandma. I'm six feet tall. I said, no, it's actually six two. I'm six two. That was funny. I show people a picture of, of her, us together. This is not in my notes. And there's like, they look at the picture for a minute, and they're like, oh, oh, because I look like, a, you know, a, the Jolly Green Giant. And then they, they, how tall is she? Anyways, so, prayer. <laughs> Pray to get taller. Um, sermon, sermon series has been on prayer lately, obviously, because we were in the, 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 uh, the week of prayer. But we're still in this, in this, this series on prayer, and Haim wanted to... Uh, to keep the, the topic on that, so that's what, what, I'm, what I'm doing. And if you were here last week, uh, Rabbi Chaim, we preached from Ezra. If you remember the point in Ezra where they were gathered and getting ready to head out, and they had all the, the approvals of the king and so forth, but Chaim made the point that, uh, and there's several points to make in there, but he did highlight the idea that, you know, even though all of the, the, the permissions were there and it seemed like everything was in place, Ezra spent time, several days, to pray. Actually waited for the, the priests to show up in order to 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 gird themselves with prayer prior to, <clears throat> to heading out. And um, <clears throat> a take-home point for me and maybe for you that he, he made there was that, you know, typically our prayers tend to be kind of of the ilk, if you will, of, you know, God, help me now. I need, I need help now. I've got things that, I, that need to get fixed right now. And what, Chaim, the, what he raised, he says, you know, the question for us really is that when we seek answers uh, or seek God for answers, how much do we care about 
you know, answers that matter to him and his purposes versus the answers that we're looking for. You know what I mean? And so um, is it simply our needs that we're trying to deal with or are we looking at him and the expansion of his kingdom and so forth? And so that's a takeaway that I had uh, from last week. And you can go back and listen to a sermon if you would like. It's available. Uh, but today's message deals directly, when we talk about the, the kingdom, deals directly with the early expansion of the kingdom of those who had faith in Yeshua as it came during the time of just some, you know, what we would call exponential growth of believers. And this story takes place uh, about midway through the book of Acts, maybe a third of the way, somewhere in, in there. Um, and it serves as a kind of, when you're reading <clears throat> Acts in, in, in succession or whatever, it kind of serves as a transition between um, the work of Peter and the work of Paul. Uh, there is a Mary, Miriam in this section as well. So Peter, Paul, and Mary for you older folks. Anyways, um, but it's kind of a transition point when, when we see that Peter, after his episode here, we'll see he kind of, he doesn't disappear off the scene, but the, the shift kind of focus, the focus goes more towards uh, towards Rabbi Shaul. And so up until this point in the book of Acts, we've seen uh, really miracle after miracle in just about every chapter of the book of Acts, um, again, which deals with what happened historically as the good news of Yeshua spread uh, among Jews and Gentiles. And we read in, in these chapters leading up to this about, you know, person after person being powerfully filled with the Holy Spirit to do all kinds of stuff. A lot of it is preaching a message that is extremely effective where thousands of people uh, come, come to believe and come to faith, um, to supernatural defenses of, of the faith and so forth. Um, to You also see um, prophetic interpretations, words of knowledge, if you will, um, physical healings, for sure, we see that. You also see one of the disciples, you see Philip, um, physically transported, like teleported, if you will, like something out of Star Trek, teleported from one place to another. And it almost, almost seems like a bit crazy. Um, but nonetheless, we see that. We also see a number of occurrences of uh, supernatural jailbreaks, where disciples of Yeshua are supernaturally freed from jail after being imprisoned for sharing the good news of Messiah. So if you're jailed for something else, I'm not necessarily saying you're going to get freed uh, from that. But you know, they're, they're, they're put in there for a reason, and they see them getting freed, which is one of the stories uh, today, um, is, is a text like that where, where Peter is released from at least his third time in prison. Um, and it's a text about a miraculous jailbreak. But more importantly... I believe it is an instructive text about living uh, a life of prayer, a life of faith, a life of trust, and a life of obedience to God. I think that's really what this text shows us more than the, the miraculous jailbreak, quite frankly. So Tracy read the first five verses. I want to read and kind of skim maybe the rest. Uh, this unit is typically seen as a unit from uh, verse 1 to, um, to 16. I'm sorry, 19. So I want to kind of just sort of skim through that, and then we'll go back uh, and, and look at some of the things in detail. So as Tracy read, um, Herod, you know, trying to curry some political favor from the Judean leaders. Um, this is definitely a political move where he saw that you know, he, he killed, uh, killed, um, killed James. 
uh, different James, not the James who wrote the book of, uh, what is it, Jacob, Yaakov, uh, not the brother of Yeshua, but the, the different one. He killed him. That, that seemed to make the Judean leaders happy, not the Jews. These are the Judean leaders. Um, obviously, he was Jewish. Other people were Jewish that weren't happy about this, but that curried, he wanted to curry favor more politically, and so he, he took Peter. And he, we, The text isn't explicit, but we know he was going to do the same thing to Peter. Uh, but after Passover, it takes place at Passover, which is interesting. I'll talk about it in a moment. And, uh, and then verse 5, which I will definitely hit on again, says, while Peter was in prison, the people were praying for him. And it says that that very night when Herod was about to, to bring him out, Peter was there in the, the prison. He was uh, bound up between some soldiers, and the angel of the Lord came, and it, it was actually, uh, I'm not sure your translation may vary, but it wasn't like a, psst, get up, shh. It was like there was a light in the word used for uh, waking him up is that the angel struck him basically and hit him. like kicked him, get up, get your stuff, let's go. And there's a lot of action that goes on where he gets up, puts the sandals on, and Peter's in this bit of a daze. Uh, if, you're, if you're following in the text here, it says he gets up, he gets dressed, he goes out. The, the, no one seems to be the wiser. The gates open up uh, for him. They pass out. And once they're out there in the city outside of the prison, uh, the angel disappears. And it's at that point that Peter... Uh, comes to his senses a bit and says, boy, this is, this is God, and I'll talk about that as well. And he goes to the house of Miriam, uh, this is uh, the, the mother of, uh, of Mark, and, um, or John, also called Mark, and that's where the people, people were praying, <clears throat> and we see that it's kind of uh, comical, it's called comedy, actually. He knocks on the gate, they recognize his voice, or the, the servant girl recognizes his voice, goes back, doesn't open the door for him. She goes back and says, it's Peter, and they say, you're crazy, couldn't possibly be him, but it is him. He comes in, he tells them uh, what happened, and then he heads out of town. And then the next day, there's a, it says that there's no, a no small commotion at the prison. And Herod interviews uh, what's going on, how did this happen, and you know, traditionally, some of your translations may vary, but I think it's, it's fair enough to say that the, the tradition, if you will, was that if you were a guard and, and you know, your prisoner was convicted of X and their sentence was going to be a particular sentence, if they disappeared, you take the sentence. So they were, they were, they were killed. Um, and then I'll, I will talk about what happens through the rest of chapter 12, but a little bit later. So that's the general the general story. And thematically, I kind of see it, um, it's a very vivid story in the sense of, um, it's definitely very vivid, but it also kind of mirrors in a way, the, uh, at least the way I see it, sort of the, the Exodus story, you know, and it takes place at Passover. I don't think that's coincidental that this thematically happens at the time of Passover. Um, if you didn't catch why I say that, it says that this, this was during the, in verse 3, that this all took place during the days of Matzah, so within maybe the, the days after Passover, in that time period, that week time period. So you've got Herod, in a sense, who's kind of like a Pharaoh character. You've got the Jews, uh, in both cases, they were oppressed people. Um, they were in a really bad position, a really bad spot. You've got Peter, as a Jew, in a really bad spot. You've got dire circumstances for the, the, the Israelites in Egypt. You've got dire circumstances for these Jews in, in Jerusalem. And uh, no freedom in sight in both cases. And then, just like in the Exodus story, you've got overnight, basically, delivery, deliverance. And, and same in this story. We see uh, in verse 6, it says, uh, is that verse 6? Yeah, verse 6, 9, like last year. Yeah, 6. Now, that very night... Uh, just like the angel of the Lord came through and killed the firstborn in Egypt, the angel of the Lord shows up again and, uh, and delivers, delivers Peter. So you've got this very this, uh, parallel story here. 
Now, Rabbi Chaim asked me when he said he asked me to look at this this passage. He just he just said, look at this chapter, and he wrote one question. He said, we'll talk about the theme, or or consider the theme of. Uh, does God perform miracles in answer to our prayers? That's what he asked. And I think um, the short answer to that question is yes. Um, but I think I wanna, I'm, I'm not going to end there. Uh, <laughs> the short answer is yes, but there are some things, I think, some additional things that we can glean from this story. So I'm going to go back through it and kind of start hopefully gleaning some things or share some things that I've gleaned and might, uh, might be able to apply them to yourself. But the, a real critical passage that I saw is verse 5. Um, this verse is in, the, in the TLV says that, so Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being offered fervently to God by Messiah's community. There's a, a specific construction in the original language there that is a, it's a very Jewish idea. It's called, a, uh, it's called a, on the one hand, but on the other hand. For Craig, it's men de. It's, it's on the one hand, but on the other hand. You've got this Jewish idea, you know. On the one hand, Peter was held in prison. But on the other hand, the people were praying for him. And that verse really inspired uh, my, my message title for today, which is, The Plans of the Enemy Meet the Prayers of the People. I really see it in that verse there. You've got these two things going on simultaneously. Men day. On the one hand, there's all kinds of things we see on the one hand. But on the other hand, there were things going on beyond what we saw in terms of just Peter being in prison. So some observations uh, about this this comedy, if you will, that is seen in these verses, uh, verses 6 through 19. You've got Peter. Let's take the character of Peter for a minute. Uh, he was taken, as it says. Uh, he knew James had been killed. He uh, was imprisoned. He was in a desperate situation. As I mentioned before, he had 16, at a minimum, 16 guards that were charged with taking care of him, <laughs> if you will. Um, the thought is that, that they were probably running in shifts, okay, uh, four at a time. They weren't all there at the same time. Some say, oh, they were all there at the same time. I don't know. It doesn't matter. But the point is there were 16 guards appointed to make sure that nothing, that he didn't get away or anything. And we see that at least at a minimum, there were two chained to him at all times, two fresh ones, I'm assuming, chained to him at all times, um, and then two fresh ones uh, watching the door, you know. This was going on the night before his execution. He was chained to two with two outside. Um, what would you do in a situation like that? Maybe you're not, I'm not talking about facing the death sentence, but maybe the night, night before, uh, you know, you, you've got something coming the next day. I don't know what it might be. Maybe you got surgery the next day. Maybe you got a uh, rent payment the next day. Maybe you got a, some other bill, a mortgage. You're not sure where the money's going to come from. You've got a big job decision at work. I don't know. Um, this is the kind of thing Peter was facing. And what was he doing? Well, of course, he was freaking out, right? He was trying to escape. He was sweet-talking the guards. He was nervously talking to them, pleading, uh, begging, bribing, possibly, right? Maybe those are some things you might have thought of that you would do in a desperate situation. But I sort of deliberately skipped over in the text when I read it before. But look back down in verse 6. It says that Peter was sleeping. He was sleeping. Somehow he was at peace. Somehow he was able to sleep. Now, we can speculate as to why, but all we know at the end of the day, quite frankly, is that he was given the ability to sleep. The verb there uh, is in what's called the middle voice. I don't want to make too much of that. However, it does in, a, in some way indicate at least some level of what they call passive action on the subject. Like, if I hit something that's active, if I get hit by something that's passive, and this is more of the passive idea where 
he was enabled to sleep. He was caused to, to sleep. We know, for instance, in the psalm, Psalm 127 says that same thing. It says, you know, that's the, 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 the psalm that says, you know, in, uh, in vain you build the city without the Lord's help, it's in vain. And, and, and it says in that verse there, you wake up early, you toil, and all this kind of stuff. But it's in vain, it says, for he provides his beloved ones even in their sleep. He provides for his beloved ones even in their sleep. I don't know if you ever think about God providing you with the ability to sleep or not, but if you ever have trouble sleeping, I think you might realize, you know, when you're young, you don't think about it, but sometimes you feel like, I can't sleep. It's like it's a big deal. So God's providing for you even in your sleep, and we see here that Peter was provided for uh, in this. It wasn't just helping him sleep, sleeping in the face of this ridiculous situation, chained to two, two guards and all that stuff. So... While we don't know, again, any more than that, that he was sleeping, I think it's safe to say that Peter uh, had confidence in God himself. But he didn't necessarily, I don't think, have any uh, specific outcome in mind, right? I think the case in point being is that when it all kind of went down and he finds himself out on the street, it was a while before he even realized what was going on, you know. Uh, he really didn't know. He thought he was dreaming, the text tells us. He says, I realize now this isn't a vision, he said, because ultimately... In verse 11, it says, Now I know for real that the Lord has sent his angel and delivered me. Now, I don't know what your, your translation says there, but the, the, the Greek word that's used for real or truth is a clear um, translation. If you look at a Hebrew translation, it utilizes the word that we all know, uh, which is emet, which comes from the Hebrew, Hebrew same kind of uh, area, root, if you will, for the Hebrew word amen, amen. Right? We're all familiar with that one. And whether deliberate or not, I think a lot of people think that the Hebrew word amen, or at least they use the Hebrew word amen, just kind of like a, a period, you know, period of a sentence, uh, the end of a prayer, amen, period, put, let's put a period on there. When, you know, the Hebrew word does include affirmations such as, you know, I believe, or verily, or truly, and indeed, you know, it can be sort of translated that way. Um, the full range of its meaning in Scripture is actually a little deeper than that. Because amen is a word that can't just be used as an indeed, verily, separately, kind of like a period, but it has to be tied to the character of God himself, that word amen. So the concepts are tied to reliability, sureness, and stability of God and his messengers and his plans, the things of God. So it's not just indeed. It's indeed because of what's behind the indeed, if that makes sense to you. So when we say amen, or when we use the word emet and talking about truth, it's not just a period. It's an expression of, of certainty and assurance in the author of truth, uh, assured, assurance and certainty in certainly a very uh, uncertain world. And it's the type of thing that does enable us to sleep in the face of real, real issues. And so in Peter's case, he is saying that whereas before he might have had an inkling that his rescue was from God, now he knew for sure that it was God. And so I would just stop for a moment and just say that I would pray that each one of us, may each one of us, you know, get to a point for, for yourself where you know that when, you know, that whatever you see happening in your lives is absolutely, I mean, I'm talking about things, that are not evil things necessarily, but that those things are absolutely, that you would know, they're absolutely the result uh, of the hand of God and not a dream or not a coincidence, not a vision, like Peter was wondering about there for a moment. So 
What brought about the angel of the Lord that came to Peter's rescue? What brought that about? You know, was it the prayers of the people? Or was it, you know, part of God's divine plan to get Peter out of jail? And since Chaim's not here, I'll say yes. You said it for him. So, okay, yes. I think it's both and. You get prayers and God's divine plan. Both of them. And another thing I want to point out here is that, you know, receiving answers to prayer are not necessarily always kind of like a, um, a one-and-done kind of thing. Like, okay, I'm waiting for an answer to prayer. I get it. Phew, that was, I'm glad that now the answer came, right? Um, you see here, for example, Peter, once he realized what was happening, he didn't just say, whew, I'm out. That's great. Man, he hightailed it. He moved over. To, he got himself over to the house quickly. He, he told them to be quiet there. He said, come here, let me tell you, he told him what was going on, and then he bolted, you know, he was, just, he was evading capture, went off to, the text tells us in verse 17 is that he left and went off to another, another place, so it's not just to, you know, receive the, the blessing and receive the answer to prayer, and go. sometimes there's some, some uh, uh, responsibility on our part to work with what God's given you and to, to, to do something, if you will, so let's consider now what's going on with the believers who are praying for, for Peter during this time, the text tells us that they were praying uh, if you look at your text there, it's probably in verse, uh, it's also verse 5. They were praying fervently. Uh, your text might say they were praying intensely. They were praying earnestly. And the word here, it's, it's not so much this p- a picture of weeping and wailing and, and, and crying out as much as it is about focus. And kind of going back to what I mentioned at the outset about Chaim's message last week, it's focused not on self but on a larger a larger picture. It's that kind of intensity, not, like I said, not the crying and, and loudness and genuflecting type of stuff. We see the same word, just for sake of example, the same word uh, used for the type of prayer Yeshua did when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane prior to his, uh, the night of his, of his coming execution, um, where the text talks about his sweat, doesn't say blood, but his sweat falling like drops of blood. Uh, and it's that same type of prayer um, and if you want to know more about that kind of prayer, I would encourage you, if you look on our website uh, under the audio section or even in the YouTube page for the, for the video portion of it from September the 2nd of 2017, uh, Michael Lang uh, preached a message on that, focusing more on that fervency prayer and what that's about, uh, his message, message there. I'd recommend you go back and listen to that or watch that on September the 2nd. It's entitled, uh, Pray and Wait or Expect for the Good Report. So they were praying, but what were they praying for? What were they expecting? People speculate. You know, it's unclear, quite frankly. And we can assume, I think we could reasonably assume that they might have been praying for Peter's release or for favor for him or mercy, whatever it might be. But we don't know the details, you know, so maybe so, maybe no. But... If so, if they were really praying for, for Peter's release, for example, were they really expecting it? I mean, when he shows up and Rhoda, the servant girl who goes to the door, says, he's here, what do they say? Of course he's here. What do you think we've been praying about? You know, they, they say, most likely all your translations say pretty much the same thing, that you're crazy, you're insane, you're out of your mind. Now, if you look at a Hebrew translation, you know what word it uses there? Meshuganet, 
You're Meshuganah. You're Meshuganah. You're crazy. Right? They assumed it couldn't be him really, but only his angel. Now people will say, well, what does that mean? Some will say, well, it's his spirit after he died. Some say an actual guardian angel, according to Jewish thought. Some will say that, no, that was an actual physical messenger that Peter had sent himself, an angel, and so forth. But no matter what that is, the thing to take note of here is that they did not believe it was him. They did not expect it to be him. Uh, Rhoda, on her behalf, for herself, I mean, she did have some belief, it seems like, but she wasn't completely in unbelief. I don't think she was totally unsurprised. I mean, she didn't even open the door. She didn't even open the door and let him in. She kind of heard his voice and said, hey, he's here. And, you know, she did, so I don't know how much, she wasn't completely unshocked. Um, but she's as close to belief as anybody, I think. But if they were, in fact, let's say they were, in fact, praying for Peter's release, and they were expecting God to answer that prayer, they sure had a funny way of showing it, didn't they? It's somewhat related, I hope this, this kind of makes sense, but I remember it made me think about a friend of mine in high school. Um, his name was David, and it was not me. This is not me telling a story about a friend. His name was David, <laughs> and he, uh, he used to always talk about being a big gambler. You know, after a football weekend, he would say, oh, yeah, lost 500 bucks on the Redskins, but I made it up on the, on the Giants or whatever. And he would always have all these big dollar amounts he would bet, and he's betting this, betting that. So one time I went up to, uh, we were, we took a field trip uh, to New Jersey. Uh, I say field trip, yeah, it was, a, it was a week, a beach week. We don't have beaches around here. When you live on the East Coast, you do beach weeks, and they're not, you know, that's a body of water that's like close to the <laughs> coast. So it was a beach weekend to New Jersey, and we went up to uh, I went to a little place up there called the Trump Plaza. Uh, there's some casinos <laughs> There's some casinos and things like that. We weren't 21. I don't know how we got into these casinos. It was kind of funny. But anyways, so we're walking through the casino. I remember on our, kind of on, we're walking through, and, and this guy, Dave, uh, puts down like 10 bucks on a roulette table. I've ever played roulette. Like he, did, he did this 50-50 bet with $10, black or white, and he got it. He won. Makes, makes, doubles his money, gets 20 bucks, and he was so giddy, and his eyes were 20, 20, 20 bucks, you know, whatever. And it became really obvious right away that I think all those big stories that you were telling about <laughs> hundreds of dollars here and there, I don't think this might have, you know, that might have just been a farce that you were this big high roller when you were, couldn't contain yourself after, you know, getting 20 bucks on a 50-50 bet on a roulette table. And, uh, you know, I think when we, when we see God move in the affairs of our lives and in the lives of others. Are we like that inexperienced gambler? I'm not saying we should be experienced gamblers, but are we like that inexperienced gambler who is stunned almost to have won, like most likely for the first time he's ever played? Or is there an element of peace and shalom that comes from like a true and earnest life of regular and ongoing prayer and expectation that God actually is involved in your affairs and in the affairs of humanity, you know? And, and from this part of the story in Acts, you know, I think we can be encouraged um, to not just pray, and not just pray fervently, but pray expectantly. But not because of us and because of our level of focus and fervency, but because of a belief in God and a belief in his ability to answer us and to accomplish his purposes, you know? Because if not, I think otherwise we're just going through the motions and maybe wasting our time, you know? And moreover, if, if what we believe is not really trustworthy or true, then I think 
we're like Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 15. It says, you know, we're, we're people to be pitied above anyone else. You know, we're the most to be pitied if we're not really believing and expecting and praying to something that's real and trustworthy, you know? And, and maybe you can grasp a prayer intellectually in your mind, right? You, can, you could even grasp the request, and you could maybe even grasp the answer in your way of thinking, perhaps. But when the, the hard evidence comes, and it's knocking at the door and calling you, basically, do you find it hard to believe, or do you want to come up with some kind of alternate explanation? It's his angel, it's his ghost, it's whatever, you know? Now, not as, not as condemnation, but as a, as a check on your faith, I want you to consider how you react to answered prayers. Do you, do you shrug them off as con, uh, coincidences, a good fortune? Do you miss them because maybe they weren't what you were expecting? Do you pray believing that what you are praying about is possible, and it's possible for you, not just somebody else? You know? And so again, we don't know what the believers were praying for specifically, but we can, I think we can safely conclude, no matter what any other commentators might say, I think we can conclude that it was either it was not for Peter's release, or they just simply didn't think what they were praying for was possible. You know? Now, if they weren't praying for Peter's release, but they were just praying for him in general, let's say, which I think is fine, and that's reasonable as well, I think that we could also learn from that example. I think we can learn from that example that if they were just praying generally, okay, so they were surprised by his release, but they were praying for him. So let's give, him, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. They were just praying for him in general. I think that should give each one of us some encouragement to know that we can just pray in general for people. You know, and this is, this is sometimes I think, you know, we said, I need to know all the details of what's going on with you so I can pray specifically for your need. Maybe we don't need to know all the nitty-gritty details every time. As Heim says, we can be transparent. We don't have to be naked necessarily. And we don't necessarily have to have all those details. A, a general prayer can be uh, just as successful, you know, because as I mentioned before, Peter got out of jail because of the prayers of the believers and I think because it was part of God's divine plan. So just a thought there about nitty-gritty details versus praying in general. A few more lessons for us out of this, this story is that I think that um, in our hearts and externally to others, it is really important that we acknowledge God for the things that happen. Um, we saw in this story here that, you know, Peter says, look, I know now that this is God. If you are to read further in, in verses 20 through 24, I'll just give you the gist of the story. This happened after all this commotion. Uh, Herod goes out, he tries to kind of strike this peace deal with Tyre and Sidon. He gets up to speak in front of a crowd. And in verse 22, it says, the people were shouting at Herod, the voice of a God and not of a human. And it says, immediately an angel of the Lord, there's the angel of the Lord again, struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and died. So was he eaten by worms first and died, or was he struck down and then eaten by worms? That's lots of books written about that. I think I'm kidding. Anyways, um, <laughs> that's the kind of stuff people love to write about. So you see that, that it's very, I think it's, this, t this tells us that you see this contrast between Peter and Herod also in the story, and I think it is instructive to us that we must acknowledge God's hand in our lives um, based on that contrast there. Another lesson, I think, for us to learn from this story is that an effective prayer is not necessarily tied to our percentages. How many of my prayers are answered? How many are not prayers? That's not... That doesn't mean we have an effective or an ineffective prayer life, okay, based on our stats, if you will, okay? 
because that's basically, if you're doing stats, you're keeping the stats, and it's according to your likes and your preferences, and here's what I think should have happened. Happened. That's a check in the positive column that increases my batting average. No, that's not how an effective prayer life works. An effective prayer life is a lifestyle and a, of relationship and obedience to God. We see again back into verse 5, which is really key for this section, we see that uh, the text says that prayers were, at least in the TLV says, they were being offered fervently. So some people just focus on the fervently part, but there's also the being offered part. This is a, a picture of an ongoing, um, ongoing lifestyle type of thing. It wasn't a one and done like, oh, Lord, help Peter. Okay, let's eat. You know, it was an ongoing prayer. It was a lifestyle. Deliverance, uh, another lesson we can learn here is that deliverance or answers to prayer can, in fact, come at the very last moment, unfortunately, right? Verse 6 now, at that very night when Herod was getting ready to call him out, he wasn't calling him out to have drinks and a cigar. He was calling him out to, to chop his head off. Um, the fact is, it happened at the very last moment. But the thing for us to realize is, as hard as this is, often that's the very last moment for you and me, but it's right on time for God. Boy, that's a, that's a hard one. Thank you, Michael. That's not to put anyone else down. That's just Michael is a little better than the rest of you. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> so, very last moment. Another lesson I think we can learn is that when the answer comes, or, the, when, the, or when, when peace comes, or when we know with truth, when we know with emet that, that this is the Lord, that we give God the recognition for that. Now, some harder lessons, some harder lessons, I think, and some things that we really should not and cannot overlook in this story um, are some of the facts that seem like maybe we saw some what we would consider you know, non-deliverance. If you, we talk about the deliverance of Peter, right? But you know what? There were some things that didn't work out so well in this story. You know, Things that seemed like quite a bit of injustice, maybe even downright evil, the problem of evil. Right at the bat, right off the bat, we see one. You know, James was killed. What was James's fault? Why, what happened to him? Not this James. Other James. You know, what happened, what happened to, to James? That doesn't seem right. Well, let's just forget about that. Peter was rescued. No, there was, there's, we've got to struggle with that one as well. You know, what effect did that have on, on, on his family, on the community there? You know, um, that was something they had to consider as well. Maybe to a lesser extent, uh, I think, I don't want to just, you know, be to not considered at all, but you got the death of not four, but 16, minimum 16 guards. Maybe there's more. There's families and people involved in all that too. I mean, you could really let your mind go off into that. We can say, oh, they deserved it, they, whatever. The point is, these are real factors to consider, real things, I think, to that are, I would consider difficult um, things from this story that we need to think about or, or wonder about at least so as to not put everything to a nice, neat little box, right? So again, we don't have simple answers, and I don't think I want to suggest any simple answers to some of those things. Um, however, you know, just like the theme behind our, our recitation of the Kaddish that we do uh, every week, uh, most of you are familiar with that, some of you may not be, but we don't say that God has caused or causes tragedies. That's not what the, the Kaddish is about, and I don't think that this is about. But what we are saying by, for instance, reciting the Kaddish is that we remain faithful and obedient to God regardless of the outcomes of life. That's what it boils down to. And as I mentioned before, um, you know, Yeshua had the same earnest type of prayer before his impending death. Yet he submitted to God's will. And from some perspective, we know that that was a good thing. However, at the time, it may not have looked so good, right? I'm sure it did not look very good. 
So these last you know, difficult thoughts, I think, are just as important, if not more important, for us to consider as lessons, lessons of, of, of patience, lessons of trust, lessons of, uh, of obedience, lessons of a real Jewish thing or word called tension. Sometimes we don't like, in, in evangelical world, so to speak, we don't like tension. We want to resolve it all. This is what they were praying for. This is why James was killed. This is what, no, there's some tension there, you know? I think it's important for us to, to consider that because, you know, at least especially, especially now, nowadays, if you will, we live in, in an immediate information culture, you know? We want answers now. We expect answers now. And we use an internet search engine to get those answers now. You know, what was the name of that movie? Who sings that song? Where are the best tacos near me right now? You know? And, we, and that's what we do, right? And we want immediate answers. And we want immediate information. And likewise, when things don't seem to go well or we have some of these more difficult things, we immediately also want to know why. We want evidence. We want explanations of why. Just as immediately. And the truth is, is that you just can't find those answers on the internet. You know, God may reserve that information for another time, and that other time may really just be literally in another time, <laughs> after our demise, if you will, our physical demise, not even in our lifetime. But I think we could take uh, a cue, for example, from, from these Jewish believers here. We can also take a cue from some other Jewish young boys a little further back in the, in the scriptures, uh, the book of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, a.k.a., Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, uh, they were getting ready to be thrown into a, a furnace because they weren't worshiping the king. And what did they say at that time? They said, look, our God whom we serve is able to save us from this furnace, but, you know, even if he doesn't, we're not going to worship you. Or we're not going to worship the thing you set up, king, you know. So, you know, when it comes to prayer in the face of anything, anything from asking for miracles to simply you know, needing to express gratitude to God for being his children and knowing that he's involved in the affairs of humanity. Our job is to recognize God's hand. Our, God is, our job is to trust him, to be obedient. And our job is to ensure that the plans of the enemy meet the prayers of the people. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word, which always teaches us, it always inspires us, it corrects us. Help us, Lord, as we pray today, tomorrow, ongoingly, Lord. Help us to focus less on our own issues and more on you and your character. Help us to be earnest and focused and expectant of seeing the evidence of your involvement with humanity. And help us, Lord, to internalize that reality that you care for us and that you do listen to the praise and the cries of your people. Help us to realize, Lord, that you are not slow to listen, you're not slow to help, but that quickly quickly, in your time, in your, in your measure of quickness, Lord, that you give justice and mercy to your people. It's in Yeshua's name we pray. Amen.